Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be taking a look at the new Amazon Prime 2020 film, Les Miserables, or Les Miserables, for people who have seen the play, I think. Uh, not actually a remake of the play. It is a different film with a different set of ideals, and we're going to talk about it. We're also going to take a look at The Nice Guys. This is a Shane Black film from 2016, starring Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe, a comedy set in the 70s. Uh, we watched it on HBO. It's over there, and you can watch it at home, too. We're going to talk about Trolls World Tour? Uh, which sounds like a strange thing to talk about, but it's coming out to uh, in-home cinema services, I guess we should say, since movie theaters aren't open due to coronavirus, uh, of course. And we're going to talk about what's been going on with that and whether or not people are watching it and whether or not it's making any money. Before we get to all of that, we need to talk about the news. And before we get to all that, I just want to catch up with my co-host for a second. Andy, uh, what are we in week five, four, five? of, of Time is lost all meeting. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, we're actually recording this on Wednesday because yesterday was Tuesday when we normally record, and I forgot it was Tuesday and wasn't ready to watch <laughs> the movies and did not because the calendars don't matter anymore because I'm staying in all the time and I don't remember yeah. what day it is. Um, Wednesday, when is night? It all blends together. Yes, we're officially wearing masks now, right? You're you wearing a mask when you go out. Mm. That's right, I do. Yes, and you actually helped me with a friend of yours uh, get me a mask, and I need to thank her for that. Uh, that's important. Um, but otherwise, things have been pretty good. You feeling pretty healthy, I guess? You think you're you think yeah, you're still straight I had a weird, really weird thing happen where I had the opposite of, like, you know, in the first week I had, like, a, a little bit of cabin fever, a little bit of, like, feeling the walls closing in, um, you know, a couple times. Uh, this or sometime last week, I had the exact opposite happen where I had, I had what I call a moment of institutionalization. Like think, <laughs> th think of, uh, like Shawshank Redemption. Like you, you become, you grow to love the wa the walls to, to love the prison you're in where I just had, I had this thought or this feeling like, Oh, this is, this is normal. This is how I've always lived. I've always been trapped in here. I've never seen my friends in real life. Like we right. only ever in interact, uh, digitally. Uh, so yeah, it was a real weird feeling of normalization and of like, why would I ever want to leave? Yeah. Uh, it's certainly like an introvert's dream, right. To not have to go out and to live on the internet. I, there's certainly parts of this that I kind of enjoy. Uh, if anything, I think, you know, adversity encourages, uh, you know, you, people to try new things, and and something I've kind of discovered during this is like, man, maybe maybe life moved a little too fast before all of this, right? Like, <laughs> my right. God, the days just flew by, and I was on a schedule all the time, and now I'm doing this. I'm like, man, this is really nice. Like, I kind of wish things were a little slower <laughs> once all this settles down, uh, mm -hmm. if whenever that happens. Um, between now and then, of course, uh, you know, we'll keep watching movies, I guess. And hopefully movie theaters will open back up eventually. And we'll talk about what that's going to look like about halfway through the show. Before we get there, we need to talk about some recent stories. Uh, just a quick PSA. I wanted to put this at the top of the show. Um, Parasite, last year's uh, Best Picture winner, winner of six Academy Awards, mm -hmm. Annie and I's favorite film of the year, is now available to stream on Hulu. If you have a Hulu account, you can go watch Parasite. If you don't have a Hulu account, you can start a 15-day free trial and go watch Parasite. It is smashing streaming records over there. I'm not exactly sure how Hulu got it first, but that's who's got it, and you can go watch it. And it's a fantastic film. So if you are stuck at home and have nothing better to watch, go check out Parasite. It's a really good flick. 
Um, next story, uh, CBS, or I guess our first story, who am I kidding? Uh, CBS, the television station, announces Sunday movie night in coronavirus programming shit featuring Indiana Jones, Forrest Gump, and more classic American favorites. I found this story, and I'm going to be honest, it's been a minute since I've read it because it came out <laughs> about a week ago. Andy, what do you know about this? Uh, yeah, so since there's nothing new coming out in theaters and people can't get out to see them anyways, uh, CBS is going to be having these kind of like, uh, what is it, Sunday night or Tuesday night? Sunday, no, it is Sunday night. Sunday, I can't read. Yeah, yeah. Sunday nights of movie night. And this, what this reminds me of is back, back in the 90s when uh, uh, it used to be... Uh, movies came on TV all the time and it was a pretty big deal, especially there'd be a big like Saturday night, Saturday night or Friday night movie or maybe Sunday afternoon. It, it was pretty, pretty regular that they would, that they would have big films on and you know, there would be like in, like in channel ads for like, Oh, there's going to be back to the future or Terminator two is playing this Friday. You know, they would kind of do these big hits. And so that it kind of feels almost like a return to that era of like everyone gather around and watch this movie, this big movie on Sunday night. No, I thought the same thing. Uh, this reminds me a lot of when I was a kid, ABC uh, would run uh, Disney films after Disney had bought ABC in the 90s. In the 70s and 80s, CBS used to do Sunday Night Movie Night. Uh, it's not an uncommon thing to run films on TV for families to watch. Seems to make sense now, uh, of course, given the circumstances. The films on display here all through the month of May, each month, each week, each Sunday. Good Lord, starting on May 3rd. The films are Raiders of the Lost Ark on the 3rd. May 10th, we'll have Forrest Gump. Uh, May 17th, will feature Mission Impossible, the first one, of course, starring Tom Cruise. May 24th, the James Cameron classic Titanic. And May 31st, to wrap up the month, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Pretty solid pick of Paramount Picture Films, Andy. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's like a play the hits kind of situation. And it's interesting to bookend with uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah, I'm definitely a little bummed there's no Temple of Doom in here. I can, of course, understand why Temple of Doom isn't featured. But at the same time, hey, Last Crusade has Nazis, and Raiders of the Lost Ark has Nazis. Those are controversial <laughs> films. Why can't we get a, a, a PG-rated, uh, probably because the heart's getting cut out and stuff. And Yeah, Temple of you Doom, know... But- I, I recently watched uh, Raiders actually last week as part of a movie party, and I was uh, it was I was just reflecting on the amount of horror imagery and the the there's a lot of horror aspects in uh, Raiders and especially in in um, the second film. So that, that's in across the whole series. That's an interesting part, but it's yeah. Temple of Doom is a little bit more extreme. <laughs> well, they're going to have to tighten up the end of uh, Raiders, that's for sure. The the face melting scenes uh, when they open the arc at the end is certainly. Probably not TV friendly, but even still, a good idea. Looking at the comments, people seem to be into this, and especially older folks watching CBS, because that's CBS's audience, so they're running older classic films. Like, seems to make a lot of sense. Probably a good idea. Other television stations should probably be doing the same thing, right? Yeah, I mean, they could. It's it's a good uh, thing to jump on. on. At the same time, you know, you're always going to be competing with streaming and video on demand. Yeah, we are. And speaking of streaming, uh, another story, Twitch, the live streaming program popular with gamers and uh, millennials everywhere, is opening watch parties to top U.S. streamers with 70-plus Amazon Prime video titles. Amazon, of course, owns Twitch.com, the live streaming service, and they are going to enable certain (laughs) streamers to run uh, their films, Amazon Prime Films, with over a, with with a seventy plus video library, 70, 70 films you can watch on stream with other people who can chat and engage with you. Uh, this is not dislike 
Netflix party, right? This is this is pretty much the same thing, right? This is basically a monetized version uh, of it because uh, you know streamers are going to encourage. First of all, they're only doing this with big streamers, so probably people that have thousands and thousands of streamers, and basically that can help advertise to an audience. Uh, so what they're probably what they're going to do is if. You know, you start watching a movie, you get a big crowd going, and then th- those people can also donate uh, or, or pay for like top comments or top emojis, uh, th- that sort of thing uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Same kind of thing. We've been having a lot of fun with Netflix Party. I didn't make it last week for Raiders, but uh, yeah, the idea of watching a film with your friends and being able to chat and engage with each other and make jokes and point out interesting things, like that's a really cool, engaging way for people to watch digital media together and increase viewership. Uh, looking at what's going to be available here for these Twitch watch parties, we're going to get series from Amazon Prime like Hunters, uh, Jack Ryan, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. We're also going to get shows like Star Trek, uh, Deep Space Nine, Survivor, uh, Miss, Mr. Robot, Marvel's Avengers is going to be featured on there. It's kind of neat. I, I think it's kind of a clever idea. Yeah, it's a new way for, or a different way to, uh, for big streamers to interact with their audiences. Um, you know, obviously, because usually this is kind of geared towards video games, and in this case, you you get the just a, something different that everyone can gather around your favorite, you know, e streamer, e person, personality that people like to watch. And um, yeah, it, like I said, th- I think this is smart, and I think there's a lot of people that'll jump on this. Yeah, and it's funny because, again, in the opposite end of the CBS thing with kind of older films from an older audience, here we're running very young, new things. We're getting things like Amazon's The Boys and and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel all the way over to, like, Pokemon and SpongeBob SquarePants are available here. Like, they seem to know their audience. They know who's watching Twitch, and they know people are going to be watching for the memes, of course. Yeah, and and so much of this is about it's interacting with your favorite star, you know, feeling like you can... Um, you know, have a conversation with a celebrity, essentially. I'll be interested to see if this sticks around when most of this kind of, I don't want to say blows over, but when we start to put this stuff behind us, right? Are we still going to be doing Amazon Twitch parties? Are we still going to be doing Netflix parties? Uh, I hope so, because they're they're genuinely a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, they're even though that's what we have to do now, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Like, I've done the Netflix party. I've done a couple of watch parties over Zoom. Um, And it's, you know, you get the whole... A big group. You get a chat going. Um, I did a, a virtual karaoke thing the the other day with like fifteen people, yeah. and it was just like the songs just passing around. And it was funny because like the like one person hosts that, and then other people just have to whoever's singing that time has to sing along. But so there's always this delay. But it's uh, it, but it was a lot of fun, and everyone just like everyone ha- had a beverage, and you know, it was there for like three hours. That is a good time. I didn't know you got to tell me about that when we're not doing the show. I didn't know you did that. That actually sounds <laughs> yeah. super cool. Well, some some bad news in the theater world. We should talk about, of course, movie theaters. Uh, obviously, they've been closed across the country. Uh, this is a story about Cinemark, of course, the second largest theater chain in America. Cinemark lays off seventeen thousand five hundred workers and furloughs fifty percent of its corporate staff. The cinema chain is genuinely struggling in the middle of all of this, like all of them are and they're laying off nearly 18,000 people my god that is a lot of people yeah I to be honest I didn't have a chance to read this story but um, this this is a huge part and we knew the theaters were gonna be uh, affected by this Uh, they've been closed for a month 
or so, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and who knows when they'll reopen? And even after, even after we feel safe, when are people going to be safe to be in large crowds like this? We just don't know. Yeah, it's it's really something. Uh, the CEO of, of Cinemark, Mark Zarati, is taking a is, is foregoing all of his payment to try to keep this or salary, I should say, to keep to keep the company afloat. Um, this is this is not a small thing. Like we talk about small movie theaters struggling, right? We talk about well, there's probably going to be some independent movie theaters that close after this. Look at these guys; they're the second biggest one, I think, in the world. I, I, I honestly, yeah. I think, I think they've even got that title, and they can. They're struggling to figure it out. We haven't heard anything about AMC and Regal, who are the first and third largest, respectively. But I mean, they've got to be in the same boat, right? Yeah, I mean, they're they're all facing the same struggles, and and they're going to have to. I mean, be some drastic measures and. You know, like I said before, I mean, we might see the closure of, of theaters, but at the same time, you know, maybe they'll become more focused. Uh, you know, they're always going to be around. There's always going to be a place for uh, the theater experience in, in society. It may, But it's going to change. It's going to have to kind of be reevaluated. Yeah, and I want to talk more about those changes once we get to our Death of Cinema segment when we talk about Trolls World Tour. Um, because I was talking with somebody about that just the other night. And, and like, what is that going to look like? when theaters open back up, you know, and, and we'll talk about that later, maybe another show, but either way, definitely some interesting news and, and keep it here on off script for more on what's going on with movie theaters around the country. But for now we should get to our reviews. Andy has graciously agreed to take the summary on our first film for this episode. Andy, please take it away. Les Miserables. J'en appelle à votre esprit d'équipe. La cohésion. Sans cohésion, pas d'équipe. So this um, is not a retelling of the Victor Hugo classic uh, mega novel, which is, I think, what I had said on the previous show. Um, uh, this film was nominated for uh, Best International Film in the previous Oscars, which, of course, went to Parasite. And that's where I first uh, had heard about this and saw when it popped up on Amazon Prime. I thought we should give it give it a watch. Um, so, no, this, this story takes place in modern day uh, in France in a kind of suburb or smaller, smaller neighborhood, which I can't remember the name of right now. Um, and it deals with... Um, Brigadier uh, Stefan Ruiz, who's uh, a police officer, and he joins this uh, new task force in this really rough neighborhood, very uh, like crime-ridden area of town. He's a new. He's not new, as in he's not new to being a police officer, but he is new to this division. So he he joins uh, two other kind of unscrupulous uh, officers na- named Chris, played by Alexis uh, Manenti, and Guada, played by Jibril Zonga. Um, and so he joins the this crew, and and instantly it's it's kind of a it's a weird place to be in because it reminded me a lot of Training Day, where these cops that he's with they're they're not dirty, but they're not by the book either. They're kind of in the, in this moral gray area, not so gray. Uh, they're they're bad cops but they're not crooked you know they're not they're not like selling drugs or anything like that but they're they're rough and they're really crass like uh chris who who kind of is the the leader of this group he he's he's known as like pink pig and he has all these pigs around his desk he he talks really crassly and we eventually meet their uh like lieutenant or or chief and uh you know she kind of allows this kind of behavior to go on and she talks about the importance of 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 um, teamwork and keeping together and really having each other's back, which seems like a good thing, but maybe in this, this uh, setting it is not. And b- by the way, the, uh, the actor playing our, our main protagonist, um, Lieutenant Ruiz is uh, Damien Bonard 
Uh, anyway, so he eventually goes out on his first kind of patrol through through the the neighborhood, and it's it's a real rough place. And we have different kind of stops where we meet different characters in in this neighborhood. Uh, one is uh, Sala, played by Almami Kanote, uh, um, who's uh, a f- kind of a reform criminal. He he's very much embraced uh, Islam and has kind of maybe a following or like a gang of there's this whole thing about kind of different group families or gangs uh, within the the neighborhood. And we also meet uh, the mayor who is maybe, or maybe not the mayor of, of the town, but he's definitely one of the big players in the streets and kind of uh, is in charge of things. And he's a guy that knows things. Um, So we get to know the neighborhood and it's rough. It's crime ridden. There's uh, just lots of people kind of running around. Uh, It's dirty. It's, cramped uh we and we see some stops we the the unit stops and this is where where we see uh kind of our main not our main uh but the main bad cop uh chris he he harasses everyone that he comes in contact with he's rude he's mean he you know he pushes he pushes i mean he's violating civil rights left and right but what are you going to do he he's the cop and you know he says this is how it's got to be um so this is a very heated environment we're in and eventually one of these confrontations uh gets out of control and the situation is also caught on camera and so this is the kind of the big conflict in the film is what is getting this film and what happens if it gets out. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Sorry. I feel I've been talking for a long time. No, 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 uh, no, (laughs) that's, that's our setup. So yes, uh, it's a, it's a complex film. That's that, that's, that's what I think of it. This movie is a film about perspective and really perspectives of, 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 of a similar situation, right? We have all of these different people from different backgrounds coming together under one, Pretty, pretty, pretty impoverished, impoverished uh, roof. Uh, we've got people of different religions, people of different politics, people of different race, people of different age, um, all, all, all kind of clashing in similar situations. And it's interesting because we are our, our main character, uh, Corporal Ruiz. Uh, he's he's this outsider, right? He's, he's a cop, first day in in on this beat, and he's he's going with these two cops, and he is our vehicle for which we experience all of these other characters. And and it's interesting that he's placed with cops that are maybe a little too tough, maybe bad cops. Uh, and, and he has to kind of sort himself and his morals out while literally sitting in the backseat with them uh, and, and trying to keep law and order in a place where he is a stranger while also um, keeping a sense of self. For, for an hour and 40 minute picture, this movie does an awful lot. And it's so simple because it's just a day in the life. It's one day. With a couple of cops, like that's really fundamentally what this movie is doing. But you see so many interesting characters and perspectives, and it's got such a tight script and such a such a well well thought out plot that you really walk away feeling something in, in a film setting that otherwise I feel like you would just kind of brush off. I was really surprised by this movie. Yeah, I I really didn't know what to expect. Like I said, I thought it was a retelling, a modern retelling of the Victor Hugo novel. Um, yeah, and and it's something it's something completely different and it, it has, it's about so many things, you know, it's about social issues about, uh, you know, power hierarchy. Cause there's the cops that have power. Then there's like the gang bosses who have power. And then there's people who don't feel like they have any power, both on both sides of the law. Um, and again, lots about lots of uh, social issues, uh, for sure. And like, like you said, uh, religion, class, all that kind of stuff. Yes. Now I think, this film is confusing on, on a handful of fronts. 
And we should probably sort out the confusing stuff before we get into what really works in this movie because there's a lot that works. And I think we should probably start that with the title, right? How yes. many people aren't going to see this movie because they think it's just a remake or like a retelling? Yeah. Because I, I thought that. I really did. Yeah, same. And and you wouldn't know any different from the like the poster. Um, you know, they needed like a tagline or something. Yes, it's it's misleading. Now, of course, like you said in the plot, the, the movie is titled Les Miserables because one, it shares thematic elements with the original work, but also because it takes place in the town that Victor Hugo wrote Les Miserables way back when. Um, so that's that's kind of the connection, uh, I think, to to the original title. But I think it's worth mentioning this is a directorial first for a director, a man named uh, Lodge Lee. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's definitely French. Uh, he also wrote the film. He's done some shorts, but this is his first directorial debut, and it is a very strong first film. Uh, it feels very film school in parts, but in the best way. It's low budget but effective it's it's cinematic and it's bold and the colors are bright and it's it's really really a vision out of something that's so simple in an impoverished neighborhood where the film could have been very gray and very bleak it's very colorful and very bright um it's really something yeah i i was really blown away by it it it, it's shot in this kind of documentary style um shaky cam uh, kind of over the shoulder shots like you feel like you're there you feel like you're in this neighborhood you feel like you're in the streets and you you feel like you're getting to know these people um, yeah it's just incredibly uh, authentic and you know I, I think a number of these people might be first time actors or just um, something like the Florida Project where they actually just got people from the neighborhood to act in the film yeah, it, it, it thematically reminded me a lot of something like uh, Roma, uh, Alejandro González Inarritu's film. Right, that's who directed that. I got yeah. that right. Yeah, uh, it, not that it's locked down in a tripod like Roma, and not that it's black and white like Roma, but that it feels like you're just dropped into the neighborhood. It doesn't feel like a set. It doesn't feel like a script. These characters are reading like it feels very real and authentic. And and you're out on the street, and you're right. It's shaky cam, and and there's some great drone footage in here, and there's this fantastic balance between. Being being out in the open and surrounded by buildings and feeling claustrophobic and being in the car with the cops and feeling claustrophobic. Like the whole world is just closing in around them. It's, it's, it, it really does a great job of making the film feel like a small, sincere story in a very large open setting. It's, it's, it's really well done. Yeah. And it reminded me a lot of, um, uh, 2002 City of God, uh, the Brazilian film, mm-hmm. which shares similar thematic elements, takes place in in a slum in in Brazil and kind of has the the rise and fall uh, of these gangs there. But it's it's that similar, really gritty, authentic, um, shaky cam, uh, local actors kind of uh, it's a treatment. Yeah, and, and and you're right. Most of the actors in here are local, but some of them aren't. Some of them are, are full-fledged actors, but I think part of the advantage of foreign language films like this and Parasite and any movie where you're reading subtitles the whole time is they feel so far removed from you. Like, they don't feel like professional actors. They feel like just people because you haven't seen them in anything. You won't know any of these actors. Uh, the, the lead was in Dunkirk, and he's listed as French soldier. That might be what you know him from. Like, I'm not even sure he had a line. Uh, Otherwise, I don't think these guys have been in anything any of us have seen. So it makes it feel really real. They feel like people. And and all of that is, of course, compounded with the fantastic script, which doesn't waste a line. Right. And it's interesting to to know that the the script was written by the director, Ladsley, but also by one of the main actors, uh, Alexis uh, Menenti, who who plays Chris. Um, Yeah, the, the writing is 
is really tight. Like I said, it's an only an hour and 40 minutes. You get to know your characters really quickly right away all in all through like, um, you know, riding the, in the back of a car and in these lots of short stops that they make, you see, you know, you see their actions, you see how rough, uh, Chris is with, with everyone. Um, he, he wears this, this weird like venom shirt. It's just a black shirt that says venom. And it's, yeah. it's interesting because it, it's like that. He has this darker alternative kind of personality. Uh, there's a great line where, um, uh, Ruiz says to him, he's like, you just like this so you can act like a cowboy. And he, <laughs> and he, he says, it's not an act. Right. Yeah. No. Uh, there's definitely some fantastic visual storytelling with the costuming and makeup design and hair in this. Uh, we've got our we've got our bad cop, of course, Chris, who wears a, sh- a black and white shirt that says Venom all over it. It's very clear that that guy is some kind of bad. I mean, it's just it's it's easy to see, and and that he sees the world in black and white. That's emulated through his costume design. We have our second cop uh, who's been there a while. I, I forget his name. He's he's uh, actually. Guada. He's very good in this, Guada, yeah, who is just kind of wearing basic stuff, but you'll notice he's wearing camouflage pants, and he's wearing kind of just a, a neutral green shirt. He blends in. That's where he's at. He, he, he kind of fits. And then we've got our main, uh, who is our new cop, in from uh, transfer. It's his first day on the job. He's wearing plaid and bright white and blue. He stands out. He Nobody looks like else... a dad. Yeah, exactly. He looks like a dad. Like he, he he has greasy hair that's slicked back. Like he looks like he doesn't fit in and people can tell that from a mile away. Um, it was really clever and, and again, great visual storytelling to make characters stand out and make you easily understand what people stand for visually even if you can't understand the language they're speaking. Mm-hmm. And that's also told through just uh, the different settings that we meet. Um, like I said, we, we meet different characters in, in kind of different, either in front of apartment buildings or in restaurants or in a mar- in crowded marketplaces. Everything feels so uh, claustrophobic. Uh, you meet a couple of, of local families, uh, characters. There's a, a kid who flies a drone who who captures uh, one of the incidents on, on camera. That's, that's a big deal. But like you, you see these people in their, their, these really small cramped apartments. Yeah. And and I think what was really interesting about this film is the way it feels like its story and its setting transcends time. That's what makes films feel so so much bigger than they are, I think. On the one hand, we have a kid who's filming an incident of cops using riot equipment and he's using a drone to film them on 4k cameras with a tablet that he's controlling and he records on an sd like it's very modern but at the same time our setting is very historical not only is it where victor hugo originally wrote les miserables but these buildings are old and they are worn down and they look like they've been there for decades right and and at the same time in our script we've we've got uh romas i should say because the 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 slur used in the film is gypsies but i don't think that's politically correct so we'll call them circus circus goers we'll say for this who people who run a circus who have who have a lion stolen from them that's that's very old school nobody's running circuses nowadays and we've got uh uh people who are are muslim who are all together in here which feels a little removed and 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 there's a feeling of 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 old school lack of modernity in here that I think makes the film feel a little timeless. And that really ties into its larger theme um, to, to, to make it kind of a, kind of a, a full picture, I guess. I, I feel like the, uh, what, what you're saying in addition to is juxtaposed with technology. Yeah. Because even, even though we're in this old, this historic neighborhood with these old crumbling buildings, um, 
yeah, like everyone's got smartphones. This kid's got a drone, you know, like they're, they still have some access to technology and that's, that plays a, a big, uh, just a big part in all this as well. Yeah. So something that surprised me about this movie is it's not particularly, what's the, what's the way to say this? Caustic? I, I, normally, whenever we recommend kind of a more mature film like this, I, we usually have to give some kind of warning. You know, hey, watch out. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of cursing. There's a lot of gore. This doesn't really hit any of those, I don't think. There's definitely some, some slurs used in the film. Uh, but other than that, it's not particularly explosive, I don't think. It definitely has some climactic scenes, that's worth saying. But it doesn't go out of its way to be ultra-violent or ultra-cursory. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's very, I don't know, it, it keeps it close to the chest. Yeah, you you can you see enough of that without them having to go into it. I mean, just the way that uh, uh, Chris like he he roughs up people, or the way he gets uncomfortably close to you know a, a couple of the the female people he approaches, um, and just like it's the threat of violence. You know, there's a and it, like there's parts where things get out of hand just because there's three cops and like twenty kids, and like even though you know they have some primitive i mean they don't have guns they have primitive weaponry uh but you know that could get out of hand at any point and if it does you're surrounded by you're outnumbered four to one yeah it reminds me that that really uh really upsetting uh awkward scene in uh bo burnham's eighth grade that came out two years ago uh when an eighth grader and a high schooler are in a car at night and and it's this really tense scene where you think something's going to happen and it doesn't but Bo Burnham had indicated had said that you know sometimes when you get the feeling of what's going to happen, it's just as effective as seeing it happen on screen. And this movie plays into that a lot. You don't you don't ever really see a ton of violence, but there's there's feelings of rage and feelings of frustration running under everything. It feels like it feels like the city's about to blow up, and and it's really effective. Yeah, the, the, there's a really interesting conversation between uh, Ruiz and and Sala, uh, one of the he's the kind of uh, Muslim. A gang leader or some some sort of like you know authority position and you know they're negotiating about like you know this this footage it's dangerous it could uh you know could it could ruin us it could you know there there will be riots and then what what would that accomplish and you know he has this great line where he says you know you're you will not be spared from their rage like no matter what happens whether people see this or not there there will be consequences yeah now I do want to say before we kind of wrap things up that it's not all sunshine and rainbows this movie does have a couple of problems (laughs) and the first one I think and probably the most prevalent for me is it's a bit slow to start it's a little hard to get into just because it's a foreign language film you're you're reading and you're trying to keep up with who's who and there's new characters being thrown at you and it's a little much at first but if you're going to sit down and watch this film understand that going in and know that by the time you get to the end of the first act going to the second you'll be pretty plugged in it introduces a lot of characters at first, but you get to know them over the course of the film, and it doesn't it doesn't just keep them coming. It kind of just slides them all in at once, and then you get to understand everybody and their motivations. So if you sit down to watch this, definitely know that, but it, it, it does get better, and it, it gets a lot better. This movie actually really heats up the longer the runtime goes. Um, yeah, it, I, I feel the same way. It starts a, l- a little slow. It, it definitely did pick up, and... Um, Definitely the, the third act is really wild, so definitely uh, stick around for it. With that being said, Andy, you ready for recommendations? I am indeed. Andy, would you recommend Les Miserables? 
yeah, I definitely would. It, it's an, an incredible uh, foreign language film, international film. It was nominated for Best International Film. And it it tells an interesting story. It's it's very deep. It's about a lot of things. Uh, and like I said, if, if you've seen things like um, The Wire on HBO, that show, or um, like I guess said uh city of god from 2002 which is uh, a total classic uh now um yeah you're really gonna enjoy it it, it is a tough film that it is about you know police brutality police uh, abuse and and poverty and uh, there's a lot of societal issues brought up but that that's really why i enjoyed it because it wasn't afraid to shy away from these things yeah, I feel the same way, and I'd 110% give this one a recommendation. It's a mature film for a mature audience, so if you're looking for something a little bit slower, a little bit more thoughtful, and definitely offbeat from like just the generic action blockbuster stuff, you know, we, we seem to just consistently get here in the States, give it a shot. Like, it, it's not a remake. It's not just, oh, the same story you've heard a dozen times over. It's totally different, and, and I think thematically it shares a lot with the original work, and I want to leave that for you to figure out when you watch this movie, but it is real good. It's available on Amazon Prime because it was published through Amazon. Uh, check it out. It's 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 a surprisingly good film in, in, a, in a surprisingly difficult time. And with that, we should probably move on to our next segment. I'm excited to talk about this. Uh, this might be something we end up watching for the show, but we'll get into it. Andy, please take it away. It's time for the death of cinema. Uh, so today we're gonna, we're going to be talking about uh, this article by the Hollywood Rep- Reporter, which uh, the title is "Universal Tests the Bounds of Premium on Demand with Trolls Sequel," um, which is a long-winded way of saying that the Trolls Sequel is went straight to video on demand for a hot, high price rental of twenty bucks. Um, Zach, what are your initial thoughts about that? Well, I think 19.99 for any film at home is a lot. Um, I man, I don't buy movies for 19.99. Like I'll I'll rent or I'll wait. It's, unless it's real good, I'm not going to be into it. And we've talked about this before. Renting movies at home already is a tough ask, but renting movies for twenty dollars or more is big, even if it's theatrical. So it's tough to think people are going to go for this. But this is a brand new film right? It's something you would normally have to go to a theater to see, and it's available at home for you and your kids and your whole family to watch for the low, low price of nineteen ninety nine. And I think for a lot of families, that's going to be really enticing. Yeah. And we've talked about uh, these kind of points before that for a family, it makes sense. It's maybe it's a little high for an individual, but what I didn't really realize there's, there's some more economics, uh, interesting economics behind this. Um, so first of all, when a, th- a film is released in theater, they have to split part of the money with that theater chain. That's just part of how it goes. Um, by going straight to uh, video on demand, they skip that split, so they're keeping a hundred percent of of the take, or you know, a much smaller per- percentage uh, to stream it out. Um, so that, and what that means is that you don't need twenty, thirty million, fifty million to make money. You just need to have about ten million uh, purchases. Uh, so, so the the number for profit or to start making money is much lower than if it has a theater theatrical distribution. Um, so that's an interesting kind of thing to to remember. Um, when, when we when these things go straight to uh, premiere, straight to on demand, and what that means is there's there's a certain budget of film that this will make sense for. If you can, if you only spend X amount of money and you can get Y amount of viewers, 
then video on demand makes sense. Now, for other things, for really big films, things like Star Wars or a Marvel where you're spending $300 million, it's not going to make sense. You would never make the money back. But for something maybe in the middle that was already really popular, it just might work out. Yes. Uh, the idea of Universal taking every dime of this film home instead of having to pay out to theaters reminds me of that scene in Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street when Leonardo DiCaprio gets fired from his first big stock job on Wall Street and goes and sells penny stocks and figures out he gets 50% commission versus like 1% on actual Wall Street stocks. So he's, he's like, oh my gosh, I can make a mint on these things. And it's the similar it's similar math. So here's some numbers. The first Trolls movie opened to $46.6 million in October 2016 and ended up earning about $350 million globally. That's not a small chunk of change. It's the reason this movie got hit for a green for a green light. Now, between the Universal split and theaters, what theaters are taking home, Universal, who made the movie, only ended up making about $190 million. That's off the box office returns, not including what it took home. Now, the movie cost about $125 million to make, so they scooped up about $75 million off the theatrical run. Pretty good, but theaters took a big chunk of their original earnings. Remember, $350 million. That's... 150 million. I know I'm hitting you with a lot of numbers here, but the point of this <laughs> is a Trolls movie costs about $125 million to make. And the theory is if they're hitting 20 million homes or 30 million homes, uh, roughly is what they're estimating. Like the, the math adds up that they should clear what, what this new film costs to make and come out to about what they made before. Now, of course we have to test this and actually try it, but Considering Trolls is already in full swing with marketing, considering they had already put out their partnerships, they had dolls out, every commercials, considering they were all ready to roll, it would have cost them more to pull back at this point. So they're all in. They're running this movie. It's coming out to, to, to the to homes at $20 a pop. And now we all have to sit back and watch and wait. Yeah, that's an, an interesting thing to, to point out is that this is an experiment. We, we don't actually know how popular this is going to be. It could be a total bomb. They could lose a lot of money or they might just hit the sweet spot. We might, we're going to learn a lot from this, whether it's successful or whether it's not. We don't know yet, but we're, we will definitely be learning. And then that can maybe create a model for, you know, a certain budget and a certain viewership that will work. And that's like... We've been saying that after the pandemic is over, like things are going to change and we don't know exactly how, but this is definitely going to be part of it. Yeah, it's it's really something. I, you know, it's worth looking at uh, in the later half of 2011, as pointed out in this story, Universal wanted to shrink the theatrical window by offering uh, a movie called Tower Heist. You might remember a comedy starring Ben Stiller called Tower Heist, available to rent in-home three weeks after the movie came out for 60 bones. And that was like a small comedy. And they backed down after the three big theater chains, AMC, Cinemark, and Regal, all came together and said, we will stop running your films if you, if you release your movie three weeks after it came out. We will stop running Universal Pictures, which is crazy, but that's the foothold theaters and theaters have in the movie distribution industry. Now, they have no cards. They have no seat at the table. There's nothing they can do, and they just have to sit back and watch all this happen. It's gotta be... It's got to be a spooky thing, man. And, it, and on the one hand, it's a bummer because uh, I love going to the movies. And on the other hand, like, welcome welcome to capitalism, guys. This is how it works. Yeah, so. welcome to the, f- the, to the future. And it's, it's also um, another point that, that we need to talk about is that um, we forget that there's a whole marketing campaign that has to go with uh, films. And they're usually as much as the budget for the film itself. So a $100 million movie is going to cost you another $100 million in in marketing costs. So another thing that this shortened window 
or straight to video kind of uh, might do is it, it allows you to only do need to do one marketing campaign instead of doing one for the theatrical release and then in three four months doing a separate one for the uh, video release. Um, so th- that's another way that theaters are looking to save money is let's just let's just um, have one campaign instead of two. Yeah, so to bring this full circle, um, I mean, reviewers like us and and other professionals who review films are certainly going to be keeping an eye on this just to see what happens in the industry. But not only us, theater chains and most definitely other film distributors are going to be keeping an eye on this too. I I think the only other real litmus test we have for where this is going to go as far as in-home theatrical releases goes is Amazon Prime Cinema Video, which is doing films for about $20 as well, and Disney's Artemis Fowl, which was set to come out around the same time as Trolls, cost about the same to make, and is headed to Disney+. Plus. People who are on Disney+, Plus will not have to pay extra for it, and it's worth mentioning here that Disney+, Plus recently saw upwards of 50 million subscribers on their platform, which is no small number, so we're going to have to see what happens, and, and studios are going to be doing it too. Paramount, MGM... Disney, of course, Universal, everybody's going to want to know what happens when you dump a theatrical film made for kids for a family picture out there. Do you put it on a streaming service? Does it do better there? Does it increase your subscribers? Do you make more money in the long run? Or do you just put it out for 20 bucks and see what happens? We're at an interesting point in cinema. Yeah, definitely. And um, I I think Disney realized that streaming is, it creates a safety net. You know, I think of the movie Annihilation, uh, which which we both loved, um, but it was it was sold to Netflix, uh, or I think it is actually only available internationally. Um, but it was sold to Netflix, and because they didn't, they just didn't think they were going to make the money, and they they said, "Well, we can sell it to Netflix for forty million, and we can break even, and that's way better than than it bombing." Um, and so I think Disney realizes that with Disney Plus, they they have. Um, they they become bomb proof. Where if if a movie doesn't look like it's gonna do great, like Artemis Fowl definitely does, looks like it would be a huge bomb. Well, you just turn, repackage it and say, hey, here's more content for your streaming service. Yeah. You know, which they've really struggled with this year. They were gonna really struggle with content, and now because of this, they have actually have a lot more. It's true. Uh, that is actually a point. Disney Plus has been struggling with new content, um, and and it's worth mentioning because I'm a bit of a bit of a closet Disney fan. Uh, Disney is genuinely struggling. You know, at first you think they're Disney, they're the biggest entertainment company in the world, sure. But what does Disney own? ESPN. Last week, ESPN was running spelling bees from 1997 because there are no live sports. <laughs> ABC, who's making stuff for ABC? No television no television shows or films are being produced right now because nobody can do anything because of coronavirus. Nobody's going to the biggest amusement park chain in the world. All of those are shut down. Disney Plus is the only way they're making money. And according to a headline I read recently, they're still losing like $30 million a day. A day they are losing to coronavirus. So... This is this is a big thing, and like things are starting to come to a head. And what's going to happen with movies going forward uh, in this time is genuinely going to lay out some strategies for the future. It's it's an exciting time to be sure. Yeah, absolutely, and and we're going to see what happens. And you know, I mean, Disney's they're a household name. They have been for almost a hundred years. Um, they're going to be around. They're going to survive this, but uh, things are definitely going to have to have to change in the meantime. Yeah. Definitely. And with that, we should probably move on to our final film. I'm going to be taking the summary on this one. The movie is 2016's The Nice Guys. March 
Jack Ely, I'm not here to hurt you, so I'm gonna ask you a question. No. How stupid do you think I am? I got a license to carry, dumbass. And ever since your little visit, this little baby's gonna stay right here. Don't move. The Nice Guys is a Shane Black comedy film set in 1970s Los Angeles when a mismatched pair of private eyes investigate a missing girl and the mysterious death of a porn star. It sounds very simple and it sounds a little raunchy and it might be just a little. The movie stars Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe as our dynamic buddy I was going to say buddy cop, but buddy private eye duo. Uh, Ryan Gosling is, what is his character's name? I do this every time. Holland March. Yes, a single father, a bit of a screw up, a bit of a drunk, but a very attractive uh, private eye with a goatee who is getting by with his daughter Holly March in their temporary home while, while their new home is being rebuilt. Uh, he's bouncing around L.A., he's trying to pick up work, and he gets a job looking for a missing girl. Uh, Russell Crowe plays another private eye, a man named Jackson Healy in town, who is trying to, who is hired to not look for a missing girl, and in fact stop the investigator who is looking for her, which is Ryan Gosling. Naturally, these two run into each other, they have a slightly violent altercation, mostly at Ryan Gosling's expense, and ultimately, after a couple of mishaps, they end up teaming up to find this girl, discover what's happened with this missing, with, with, with the death of this porn star, uh, and, and figure out what's, what's at the bottom of this exciting, exciting 1970s caper. Uh, this movie came out in 2016, like I said at the top. Uh, it's been out for a little while. I had seen it once, and I remembered enjoying it, but it'd been a long time since I saw it, and I have a friend of mine who's really into it. We were looking for things to watch on the show. I saw it was available on HBO, which is where we watched it. If you have HBO Go or HBO Now, you can watch it there. And I thought, you know what? Maybe that'd be fun. I pitched it to Andy. He thought, what, what, what the hell? We'll watch The Nice Guys, and we watched it. Andy, what did you think of The Nice Guys? So I remember hearing a lot about this film when it first came out, and I remember hearing all this about like, oh, you know, it's a great, a new original comedy. We, we don't get a lot of original films. You got to see it. I'd heard a lot of really good things, and there are a lot of really good things uh, about, I, I think, uh, Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling work well together as this mismatched duo. Um, the miss kind of Hollywood mystery, which has become its own genre, the, the L.A. mystery, you know, it reminded me of things like Under the Silver Lake or Mulholland Drive, L.A. Confidential, these uh, these kinds of films. Um, you know, that that starts out engaging but it kind of loses steam there's a lot of there's a lot working for this film and then there's a lot that's not um that's kind of my my overall thing i, I think overall i enjoyed it but i definitely could have uh, tightened up in a lot of ways yeah i, I agree I, I there's a lot that i like about this movie i think it's a, a really cool offbeat comedy that does some things differently that we don't see every day especially some really really clever kind of hidden tributes to older comedy things things like the three stooges uh that were really enjoyable there's definitely an homage to to los angeles and hollywood history it's a lot of fun uh i don't think it's well i guess, I guess it is just a coincidence but it's funny uh this was made in 2016 uh ryan gosling also made la la land that same year both kind of classic tributes to uh california and los angeles living so that was kind of neat but um there's a lot in this movie that works. You're right. There's also some things that don't. There's a reason it didn't blow up and become a huge comedy hit that we've all heard of. But you might remember it. You may be thinking now, I don't remember this movie. But if you looked at the cover, but if you saw a trailer, you, you might you might recall. We should talk about what works in it and what doesn't, of course. Uh, I think the first place to start is our leads, right? Our buddy cop duo. We have Gosling. We have Crow. Uh, what do you think of these two? 
Uh, I, I think they're they're good in their roles. Uh, Ryan Gosling is he's got some really great comedy chops, um, and he he's like he's a good detective, but he's he's not a tough guy. You know, R- Russell Crowe is like he's kind of the bigger, burly, uh, get get his hands dirty kind of guy. But Ryan Gosling is, is definitely not. And like like I said, uh, Russell Crowe who plays Jackson Healy uh, is good in that role. He's got that low, gruff voice. He's the uh, you know he's not flashy. He's just kind of tells it like it is. And we have a, a great cast as as well. Uh, the, the new Newcomer uh, Andre Rice, who who plays uh, the daughter Holly March, is great. We also have uh, the great Keith David, Matt Bomber, Margaret uh, Qualley, just uh, uh, Kim Basinger, of course. So it's just it's a really good cast. Yeah, definitely some surprises by who who turned up in this movie. Seeing Keith David or Matt Bomer show up was really a surprise. Uh, but I, I think Gosling is probably the best performance in the film as Holland March, our, our our single father. He's just kind of this wiry. <laughs> kind of snarky detective who's super goofy and he plays opposite Russell Crowe who plays this kind of tough no-nonsense straight man right and that's that's really our duo and it's weird because you would think Ryan Gosling would be a better straight man in in a duo comedy straight man of course referring to a man who is kind of the person the jokes bounce off of right he he's not the punchline he's he's in this movie, Ryan Gosling is the punchline. Russell Crowe is is the setup. That's the difference. Well, right? especially especially after we just reviewed uh, Drive the other week, where he is like that that silent, stoic, no right. emotionless kind of performance, and which he did for a while. And it's nice to see him uh, do go in a completely different way. Yeah, we know he's got some comedy chops from movies like Crazy Stupid Love in 2011, where he where he played the straight man versus Steve Carell, or in uh, Big Short, right, uh, where where he was kind of a comedy figure, and that was a year before this one. In this, he is the joke. Ryan Gosling is the thing you are laughing at. He's goofy. He's got a high pitched scream whenever he's scared at something. He falls a lot and and always manages to get back up. Uh, his, his daughter Holly March doesn't think much of him, but. He's a really endearing character, and in scenes, he's he's some he's he's a force right out of like Bud Abbott and Lou Costello bits, especially in one scene where he's a little drunk and discovers a, a particularly violent thing happening behind him. Uh, <laughs> yes. He's a lot of fun. He's a lot of fun to watch in this movie, and and the jokes don't always land. That's tribute to the script, but he was having he was having a, a time making it. That's for sure. That his delivery, the way he he drops lines. Uh, it's nuanced in a way that I think he really thinks about all of his roles, and I think he's the best part of this film. Russell Crowe is pretty good. Uh, he's he's not bad, but I think there's a reason you haven't seen him in a whole lot since 2016. Um, it's he just didn't really land in the way I think he needed to, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I do want to talk about our supporting cast, of course, our young uh, Holly March, played by Andrew Rice, a newcomer. Uh, she was okay. Uh, I, I She was also in Spider-Man Homecoming. I think she's one of the students that's running around with Peter Parker and friends. Uh, but otherwise, she was all right. In, in a lot of ways, her character, I think, is a little intolerable. She reminds me of Inspector Gadget's uh, sidekick, <laughs> Penny. You're just like, kind of get out of here, Penny. We, we don't need you. You know, you're yeah. uh, Matt Bomer as as a as a kind of hitman is is surprisingly stern, probably a little too much. But I think that's by direction from Shane Black. Keith David shows up in this movie, Kim Bassinger. Uh, I was surprised by who turned up. And, and it's small cast, and, and they're not exactly all heavy hitters, but they're characters in a way that stands out on screen and works for the film. They're just a little it's a little not colorful enough acro- across the board, I think. Just like Russell Crowe, they don't quite land, and I think that's because of the script. I really do. It's just not, it's not punchy enough to really jump out at you. Right. Uh, 
sorry, I, I was thinking, thinking a lot about the uh, uh, the cast here. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, Andrea Rice's, uh, not so much her performance, as much as that she had a, a very involved character. You know, th- this is usually s- uh, something reserved for a male character, and she, she, you know, she plays like the tag-along daughter that, um, you know, helps solve the case and is uh, pretty instrumental to, to the film overall. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and I do want to talk about uh, the plot overall, right? Where our movie is going, of course. Right. Uh, our two private eyes at the beginning of the film are kind of against each other. They're working for, for on opposite ends of the spectrum. One is trying to find a girl. The other one is trying to stop our, our hero from finding the girl. Uh, they end up kind of coming together and, and having to work together to figure out this frankly convoluted plot uh, about this pornography film and the Justice Department in Detroit trying to stop the pornography film and this woman who's in it and disappeared, but she's in this part of it and the director, it kind of goes all over. And that's really the biggest weakness of this film. It's yeah. just all over the place. I was with it initially. So so it starts, the whole film starts with a car crashing through uh, a bet a house a bedroom in in Hollywood LA and uh one this this beautiful woman kind of gets thrown out of it and you know she <laughs> she's becomes part of the this uh you know Hollywood mystery but it takes a while to get going and even once uh you know I was reminded of much better films like like Chinatown or like I said Mulholland Drive like you start to get this kind of um intriguing Hollywood mystery of like, okay, this person is dead and now this person's dead and now there is a fire and this thing that was here isn't there. And so you initially start to get really into it and then it just kind of, it gets pushed to the side and it also just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's really kind of hard to follow. Yeah. The way our, 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 our two private investigators are finding clues and then following up on them and moving from scene to scene. It's just a little too fast. It all happens verbally, and it's a whole lot of tell and not show, and that doesn't really work in film, right? Like, you need to show me how they're arriving at these conclusions. When our character sees something that's a clue across the room, it needs to be have a spotlight on it, and they need to look and, and have the camera turn and, like, have, have something dynamic happen, and really it doesn't. Really what will happen is Ryan Gosling will see something across the room, and then three scenes later briefly mention it to Russell Crowe and they'd be like, Oh, well let's go here. And it's like, wait, what is he talking about? What did he see? And like, it's not, it's not quite dynamic enough to bring you from scene to scene. Our characters are funny and, and their, and their content, their, their, the, the way they engage with each other is good, but what they're engaging each other on is hollow. And that's a shame. Yeah. And it also, I feel like the movie peaks really early um, in the, kind of into the second act uh, about an hour mark uh, they go to this, this big Hollywood par- party and where there's a lot of kind of new answers or new intriguing things are discovered that's one of the most interesting moments in the film the problem is there's another hour to go after you you get there like because and the reason is that there's a number of action setups that that were clearly you know they wanted to throw some action in here and so you get some set pieces but like I said, the most interesting part of the movie happens like halfway through Yes, uh, I, again, talking about the beginning of the show when we said time has lost all meaning, uh, I actually watched this movie in two parts. Uh, I, I had started watching it um, a couple days ago and I watched an hour and it was super late at night because I stay up late now because why would I have to get up in the morning? And uh, I, I watched the first half and I thought, you know what, I'm pretty tired. I'm an hour into this movie. I think I just hit the peak of the second the second act. I'll, 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 I'll go to bed. And then Andy tells me the next day, I just watched The Nice Guys. I said, what'd you think? He said, a little long. And I said, what do you mean? 
I got unlooked. I had an hour left to go. I was barely halfway through it, and I yeah. thought for sure it was wrapping. And and that next hour is just a slog. And like, I, it's a shame because like I think there's bits and pieces in all of these scenes that work. There's funny lines or good quips or great reactions or great acting. Um, but it's just too much. Like they should have tightened it up, figured out a way to kind of rework the script, give it another revision before they started filming and just said, how can we cut 25 minutes out of this picture and make it still work? And I think it would have been so much tighter for it. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, they have to make room for a couple of these um, over-the-top action sequences. There's a part when the uh, hitman uh, played by <clears throat> Matt, uh, is it Bomer? Bomer, I think. Bomer. Um, he he comes to, to a house and to try to get someone, you know, and it turns into like a war zone. It ter- Like he, there's a part where he has like, yeah. you know, uh, you know, an AK-47 or some sort of automatic machine gun. And he's like lighting up this house in the middle. I was like, you're like in a residential neighborhood. And he's just like blasting away and there's a couple of of things that are just like they're actually a little bit too over the top like i understand you're going for an action comedy but something actually like um coffee and kareem did a much better job of of having action that that kind of fit the film right like there's there's a real fine line you got to walk there a fine example um like you said, walking the line between action and comedy. In that scene, right there, when Matt Bomer is shooting at our at our at our heroes, uh, Russell Crowe is hiding behind the base of a palm tree, and Matt Bomer, over the course of like four minutes, shoots this palm tree so much it falls over onto Ryan Gosling's house, which is very funny. But it takes like four minutes, and also, how do you shoot through a palm tree? Like in that amount of time, it makes it seem realistic and really what he should have done is like hucked a grenade and the grenade blew up and then it fell over that's a much faster setup and payoff like that's a better joke well and also just like you know the whole point of a hitman is you know someone who is like quiet and silent and deadly and kills you in your sleep kind of thing and this guy he's just spraying bullets like it's world war ii (laughs) yeah yeah which like is funny in its own right but like when the scene is 18 minutes long it's just like okay like it's not funny anymore you know and you don't really hit that place where it comes back around and it's funny again it's just kind of contrived and it could have just been tighter and better and and that's a shame because it hurts i think pacing really is important in a comedy film uh now i do want to talk about something that does work uh the costume design and set design um this is set in 1970s uh, Los Angeles, and and I think the costumes and and the sets reflect that so well. I mean, just just from looking at the poster and the fonts they used, it's already fantastic. But Gosling is dressed in this kind of blue suit with a broken arm, like the whole movie, which is enjoyable. His ties loose, his his clothes are sloppy, and he's probably a little a little buzzed throughout the film. Whereas Russell Crowe is wearing this awful blue leather jacket that that really reflects his disconnected kind of disconnected uh disconnectedness with the world i should say and fashion and anything relevant and we have our little girl uh who's wearing overalls and pigtails the whole movie like it's very it's very character driven this costume design it fits great with 70s los angeles just looks super authentic that scene you mentioned when they go to a hollywood party it looks like he got dropped in 70s it looks like something out of out of austin powers it's it's Mm -hmm. it's really bold once upon a time in hollywood is what i was Yes. Yeah. Uh, Which, of course, makes you feel like this is very much a tribute to 70s Los Angeles. And I think it is. I I, I really do. Yeah. I mean, everything's a tribute to L.A. that's That's in L.A. Yeah. 
Um, but it might be the most self-absorbed like city in filmmaking ever. Yeah, and I think it's it's that sense of like feeling like this is a tribute to something that came before. Not only not only in the comedy style that again, in in times harkens back to like Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, like the '40s and '50s. Um, but also the '70s Los Angeles. The the way this film's put together makes it feel like it's a tribute to what came before. It makes it feel like it's trying to emulate films of an earlier era, and that's what's so fascinating about seeing that it's directed by Shane Black, of course. Shane Black did direct most recently Predator, The Predator, which was a movie we went and saw that was terrible. It's very bad. <laughs> That's right. He also directed uh, the original... Uh, he also directed... What am I thinking here? Iron Man 3, uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is a lot of fun. Uh, he wrote Last Action Hero and he wrote Lethal Weapon. Most of Lethal Weapon, like those films. The man knows how to write and put together an old school film. And when I saw Predator, I thought maybe it's trying to pay tribute to like old 80s Predator, right? Maybe it's trying to be that same thing. And I kind of thought it was, but it's also really bad. I think this is trying to be just like that, something older and something more classic. And it just doesn't quite get over that mark. It just yeah. doesn't It just doesn't yeah. feel that way. Um Back to back to kind of the the plot that that's how I I was just thinking now that that's how the, like I said it's, the plot is overly convoluted it also ends up being this really massive thing instead of keeping the scope to like just the city it becomes like it's like this n- national conspiracy thing and it it's it's a again like the action it's a little bit over the top mm-hmm. and and I I I I like so much about what this movie does I love the kind of set dressings I love Go- Gosling's great in it. I think I might just be a diehard Ryan Gosling fan. I don't know. Yeah, maybe we, we that, all that, are. Yeah, that might just be where I'm at. But <laughs> ultimately, it's it's a lot of fun, and I think it's made for a certain audience. But just in general, just doesn't quite get over there. It's a shame. It's it feels like it's just going to be relegated to a kind of a mediocre boilerplate comedy. And I think there's parts of it that are so much more than that. But ultimately, it's it's just not it's not better I, than the sum of its parts. Yeah, I mean, it's like we were talking with, with uh, Tombstone Rashomon uh, from last week, where it reminded me of much better movies of the same genre that I would rather be watching. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess that's, I guess it's okay. You know, that's part of the fun of doing a show like this is discovering what comes around. But um, man, in, in a set of years when Ryan Gosling was like the King Midas of Hollywood, he's just a little, I don't know. This movie just doesn't quite get over. So anyway, uh, Andy, any other thoughts on this one? Uh, no, I think I'm ready for recommendations. Andy, would you recommend the nice guys? Um, I th- I think I would for streaming. If you this is on uh, right now, it's playing on HBO. Uh, so if you have an HBO uh, account, it is funny. It's entertaining. You know, you you get good performances out of the cast. You get a lot of over the top action. Uh, my biggest complaint is just it's way too long. It's the full two hours. It's a ninety minute film squeezed into two hours. <laughs> yes, I agree. It's stretched into two hours. Yeah. No, I feel I feel the exact same way. Like somehow, it just doesn't come around to be as good as it sounds. Like I I, I know I've done a lot of. Uh, smattering of this movie but at the same time like there's a lot that works but ultimately it's too long the script is just a little too too dragged out the 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 way our private eyes kind of discover the next part of the plot doesn't really bring us along with them in an exciting way we're kind of dragged not pulled you know not 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 pushed and and I don't know. It's a shame. Uh, I, I I laughed. I think I think it passes the six laugh test but ultimately the nice guys is just not not quite there. So what I recommend it maybe <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. If, if, it's it. for, for certain audience. If you're a, if you're a Gosling fan, yes. if you got this subscription, sure. Yeah, if you're a Gosling fan, if you have nothing better to watch on HBO, 
go for it. It's not too violent. Definitely some nudity. That's worth mentioning. Uh, definitely some curse. Well, I take it back. It is a little violent in some parts <laughs> for comedic I th- effect. I think it w- it would actually do better in a theater. I was thinking that a lot of the the funny stuff is m- would be more funny in a, in a group than it is by yourself. Yeah, I agree. And and I think if you're watching with a group, maybe on Netflix party. Well, even though this is HBO and you can't watch there, I don't know. Maybe if you watch with other people, you'll enjoy it more than we did. That's that's my thing. And don't watch it in two parts because you won't be doing yourself any favors. That being said, that wraps our show. Uh, Andy, what are we what are we doing next week? Okay, so we're actually going to take next week off, but uh, the week after we we have a, a couple of new releases on April twenty fourth is Extraction, uh, the new kind of action rescue uh, extraction film uh, starring Chris Hemsworth. Um, um, and then on April 25th, HBO is releasing Bad Education, which is a movie based on the uh, cheating, bribery, embezzlement uh, scandal of a school district in uh, Georgia, maybe Atlanta, uh, <laughs> in in that area, uh, starring Hugh Jackman, which we're also looking forward to. Yeah, I'm excited to see some brand new Hugh Jackman stuff. Been a while since I've seen that guy doing anything. And we talked about Extraction's trailer last week on episode 97 of the show. So if you haven't heard that, go back and listen. And if you want to hear more of what we're doing, subscribe to the show. That's the biggest thing you could do. You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on YouTube. We're around. But if you really want to keep up with what we're doing, subscribe to the show. Maybe throw us a rating and review and let us know what you thought. Email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com. And let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what you think we should watch. What you think of all of this uh, movie theater stuff. And whether or not they're going to open or Cinemark's going to shut down. Where Trolls Trolls World Tour is going to go. Whether or not you would do a CBS or a, a Twitch watch party or watch a Sunday night movie on CBS talk to us engage with us uh, you, we, we that that's it I, I just really ran out of gas right. right on the end there yeah my god <laughs> thank you for listening yes thank, thank you. you for listening to the show from all of us at Offscript the home of Bold Cinema I'm Zach Lewis and I'm Dr. Draper thanks for listening